You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The U.S. State Department acknowledges an email breach. The criminal gang Iron Group is hitting targets with data-stealing and data-destroying pseudo-ransomware. Bristol Airport continues its slow recovery from whatever hit at the end of last week. A crypto mining study is out. Facebook offers help to political campaigns. The new U.S. cyber strategy is out. ICOs get regulation. And Mirai Masters get suspended sentences in recognition for the help they've rendered the government. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, September 19, 2018. The U.S. State Department confirms that it sustained a breach of its unclassified email system with hundreds of staffers' information affected. Hundreds is said to amount to about 1% of the department's workforce. The breach occurred earlier this year, and the principal concern is exposure of personal information. The department acknowledged the breach after Politico obtained and asked about a sensitive but unclassified memo dated September 7th. At that point, State said yes, they had sustained a breach, that it was of course a sensitive matter that remained under investigation, and that it had notified the employees whose data were exposed. The department told Politico, quote, This is an ongoing investigation, and we are working with partner agencies, as well as the private sector service provider, to conduct a full assessment. End quote. The private sector service provider would be Microsoft. The State Department uses Office 365 to handle its unclassified email. The State Department has received a good deal of stick over the incident, and while State is by no means the only offender, it's recently come under senatorial scrutiny over some reports by internal and external investigators that suggest that all is not as secure as it should be over in Foggy Bottom. A letter on September 11th from Senators Wyden, Democrat of Oregon, Paul, Republican of Kentucky, Markey, Democrat of Massachusetts, Gardner, Republican of Colorado, and Shaheen, Democrat of New Hampshire, tasked the department with failure to meet federal cybersecurity standards, particularly with respect to authentication. Within security, there's the common notion of hard versus soft targets. To a certain degree, that's self-explanatory, with hard targets having the most sophisticated and in-depth defense. There's a good bit of nuance when it comes to soft targets, and Ray Watson from Macergy joins us to explain. Soft targets is one of those words kind of like cybersecurity or cloud that really depends on the context in which it's being used. But in general, uh, for something to be a soft target, it typically is a smaller uh, budgeted uh, company, It usually has a less likelihood to do full incident response after an issue. And when we talk about what is a soft target, you usually talk in terms 
of the three S's, which would be uh, the amount that they spend on cyber defenses, the sophistication of both the defenses and the response, and then also the ongoing support that they would be expected to receive. Now, does a soft target typically know that they're a soft target? Uh, yes and no. I think that there's definitely some groups out there that recognize that trying to defend themselves from adversaries on the public Internet is probably uh, outside of, of what they can do in their day to day operations, specifically uh, churches and nonprofit groups and NGOs might be you know, particularly aware of the fact that they are somewhat soft targets. But then there are some other folks out there where there's a lot of debate about whether we would classify this as a soft target. And the best example of this is our SCADA and industrial control systems, hmm. whereas a lot of people consider those to be, because of the large, the size of the attack surface, they consider those to be soft targets, uh, whereas a lot of the other folks on the other side are saying, you know, we're doing absolutely everything we can to harden those, uh, to patch those and, and to get them so that they're, that they're, that they're actually hardened. So, but but to contrast that to me, I mean, I I think uh, you you make a good point that there's certainly no lack of attention being paid on SCADA systems. So so you're saying it, it's really the the size of the attack surface, despite trying to batten down the hatches, they may still have some, I guess, a soft underbelly, if you will. Sure, and that sort of comes from the national security implications when they talk about things like terroristic targets, right? It has to do with the surface area divided by the amount of defenses that you have you know, available to it. So, And in the cyber world, it's a little bit different because there's also entire categories of places that hold your data, uh, that hold your data as a consumer or your data as a business, that their entire business should be considered somewhat of a soft target. And the reason I'm even bringing this up is because uh, what was in the news a couple days ago was the Russian Orthodox Church had mm. been breached by uh, one of the nation states uh, hacking groups that were out there. And it really made me think of the fact that so many churches out there have data that we wouldn't necessarily want shared about us to the world and certainly data that we wouldn't want added to an online big data profile in some government database out there. Uh, but it's not really something that we talk about when we talk about uh, defenses. And and then the, just the very, very next day, Air Canada leaked around 20,000 records for their passengers. And even though everyone thought at first, well, how sensitive could that data be? It actually turns out that several thousand of them had their full passport information saved into their profile. So in that scenario, it's not just the fact that the, the, the attack surface is wide. It also has to do with the fact that it's not necessarily protected with the high levels of things such as multi-factor authentication or rotating passwords or even firewalls, et cetera, that are out there uh, to protect that data. You know, one of the best examples to think about when we when we talk about protecting soft targets is the fact that uh, so adversaries almost always are looking for points to either pivot or to make lateral movement. Uh, Cyberwire had a guest on the other day by the name of Fred Knipe, and he actually brought up one of the best examples of this uh, that I've ever heard, which was when we think about the massive data breach at Target, that, of course, came in from what I would consider a soft target, which was their HVAC vendor that had perpetual access to their systems. And so even though Target may have hardened all of their points of ingress for their corporate network, uh, their extranet access to their, their partners actually 
uh, had this big of an effect. And I will tell you that another example of this that kind of really brings this to mind is when we think about bed bugs, mm. because business travelers are very, very likely to bring bed bugs into their homes, not because they're staying at dodgy hotels and, and hostels, et cetera, but just simply because they're staying at so many hotels, right? And when you think in terms of protecting your own home from, from uh, pests or any, any kind of infestations like that, it's very, very easy to pick something up basically in a remote hotel that maybe didn't necessarily uh, take good of care of that. That's Ray Watson from Macergy. His Twitter handle is Ray Redacted. Palo Alto Networks is tracking Iron Group, a Chinese-speaking criminal gang that's distributing pseudo-ransomware. The malware steals and then destroys data. The ransom demand is just misdirection. The malicious code self-propagates across affected networks using backdoors exposed in a hacking team breach. This does appear to be a criminal data theft operation, unlike earlier episodes as NotPetya, which is generally regarded as having been a state-directed campaign. Bristol Airport still hasn't recovered from the ransomware-like attack it sustained at the end of last week. Authorities have been unclear on just what the attack was. While they've said they didn't pay any ransom, they've stopped short of calling it ransomware, period, or even ransomware full stop, as they might put it in Western England. Nor is there any insight being offered into how the airport's systems became infected. The most publicly visible effect of the attack was the terminal's departure boards going offline. The caution the airport is showing is generally met with approval, and many observers have noted that Bristol continued flight operations without delay or undue disruption. Ransomware, or even malware similar to so-called ransomware, if we must so describe it, has proved difficult to eradicate from an infested enterprise. Just ask the city mothers and fathers of Atlanta, Georgia, another place where passenger-facing systems at an airport were affected. In that case, the ransomware was much more widespread, with Atlanta's airport Wi-Fi seeming almost an afterthought among the disturbed networks. ESET points out that two other airports sustained notorious ransomware attacks last year. Both were in Ukraine. Kiev was hit by a Petya version in June, and Odessa was attacked with a Bad Rabbit variant in October. The Cyber Threat Alliance has a new study out on crypto mining. Among their more interesting points is an observation that a cryptojacking incident in an enterprise should be regarded as what they call a canary in a coal mine, a warning sign that something's wrong with security and that the enterprise is open to more immediately damaging attacks. They also point out that even as cryptojacking grows in sophistication, its lower reaches have been commoditized. The script kiddies can readily get attack tools on the black market. And of course, the widespread persistence of eternal blue vulnerabilities so often exploited by cryptojackers affords evidence that patch management remains an unsolved problem of cyber public health. Facebook has joined the companies offering to help political campaigns stay more secure during the U.S. midterm elections. The social media platform is offering to help the campaign set up two-factor authentication. The U.S. Defense Department has issued a new cyber strategy. That strategy assumes a contested cyberspace in both war and peace and has the following major goals. Mission assurance, enhanced U.S. military advantage, defense of critical infrastructure, securing defense information and systems, 
and expanded cooperation with all partners, U.S. government, industry, and allied. A U.S. federal district court has decided to allow juries to apply security law to cases involving initial coin offering fraud. This is expected to set a precedent for more regulatory action in ICO markets. Regulatory agencies are now thought likely to have fewer inhibitions about treating ICOs like securities. The three young hackers responsible for the Mirai botnet are getting their sentences suspended. Instead of jail time, they're cooperating with the FBI. The three, all still in their 20s, are Paras Jha, 22, of Fanwood, New Jersey, Josiah White, 21, of Washington, Pennsylvania, and Dalton Norman, 22, of Materi, Louisiana. They assisted in the Kilohost botnet takedown and also helped mitigate distributed denial-of-service attacks that exploited a memcache vulnerability. Prosecutors put a good word in for them yesterday, and the federal judge responsible for their case in Alaska sentenced them each to five years probation. So stay on the straight and narrow, kids. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Daniel Prince. He's a senior lecturer in cybersecurity at Lancaster University. Daniel, welcome back. Um, We wanted to talk today about asset-based risk assessment and uh, some potential problems there. What can you share with us? Well, thanks for having me back on. So a lot of the work that we're doing here at at Lancaster is really looking at 
the effectiveness of uh, cybersecurity risk assessment and, and risk management, particularly in industrial control systems space. But one of the problems that we're kind of coming across now is that a lot of the risk assessment processes are, are based on health and safety processes, particularly in uh, process automation, industrial control, and and or um, quality control um, sort of risk management processes. Um, and within those kinds of environments and those techniques, um, you often assume that, uh, well, you, you regularly have a, a non-malicious uh, threat agent. In fact, often you don't have a threat agent whatsoever. So if you think about quality control, the, the process that, that, that you're putting the systems through, it's part of a, a, a standard physical degradation, for example. If you're thinking about health and safety, you're not really thinking about there'd be somebody maliciously trying to tamper uh, with any of the systems. But when you talk about cybersecurity, there's always a threat agent that is trying to maliciously undermine the systems that you've put in place. And when we look at the standard risk assessment processes, although we often see the threat agent captured in the, you know, the standard formula, you need a, somebody to take advantage of vulnerability and so on, they're not really factored in as effectively as the assets. All really risk assessment processes stemming from quality control and health and safety stem from understanding all of your assets and then building up your risk profile from those. What we're trying to advocate and starting to develop work on is actually thinking about the um, threat agent and how they process and how they work through the systems. Um, and one of the things that we're finding that's quite interesting is uh, the asymmetry in information uh, between the threat agent and uh, the defender. And so as a defender, you often know the whole of your network. What uh, an attack from a threat agent might look like is completely uh, sort of nonsensical from your point of view because you know everything. But from the attack agent's point of view, the threat agent's point of view, the path that they're taking to achieve their goals is, uh, is completely sensible. So we're looking and trying to look at new processes where we can factor in more threat agent kind of knowledge and rebalance that against the uh, sort of the asset based approach and, and seeing if we can get better risk management uh, concepts that, that come through from that. Can you give us an example? What does that exactly look like? So uh, I think one of the, the key things for, for us is that, that asymmetry of information. When you're planning and thinking about just your assets, you're thinking about what's important to you. Um, uh, but one of the key things when we look at attacks, we really need to frame that as what is important to the attacker to achieve their goals. Um, and that also allows you to bring in this idea that you're potentially just collateral damage and uh, to be able to achieve a higher order effect as because you're part of a supply chain. So you're a link to another company or another organization that the attacker is trying to get to. Mm. It's not that your information and your assets aren't important is just they have to use those or that's the easiest way that they've decided the attackers have decided to get to their ultimate goal and so I one of the things we're finding is it's taking out that kind of almost egocentric we're the most important part of, of, of the attack and so you can start to develop better defense and remediation techniques by balancing out what's important to you but also what's important to the attacker. Hmm. No, it's an interesting insight. As always, Daniel Prince, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. 
For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.